It's moving on into the transitions that we face as Christians. And two weeks ago, Pastor D looked at a negative transition that the Israelites faced as they as they took Jericho and then Achan stole some of the things from Jericho. All the, all the treasures of Jericho were supposed to be devoted to God. Achan stole some of them. And because of that, uh, the Israelites faced, they, they were faced defeat, they faced a negative transition, and so they had to repent, they had to seek God and deal with, with their own sin. And then last week, Pastor Dean talked about another, another negative transition the Israelites faced because of their sin, when he talked about the Gibeonites, and how the Gibeonites deceived uh, Joshua, deceived the, the leaders of Israel, and because of that, you know, God's, the Israelites didn't seek God, and so God's punish on them, punishment on them it wasn't too severe, but they did have to fight some extra battles. They had to deal with some extra issues because they didn't seek God. And so they kind of took a kind of took a side turn and didn't go directly the way God wanted them. But today we're going to look at a negative transition that someone faced, not because of his own sin, but because of the sins of other people. It's a setback that he faced because of other people's sin. And we're going to look at that for ourselves. How do we handle negative transitions, setbacks in our life that seem to come from the choices and, and the actions of other people, not our own, it's not our fault? How do we handle that? How do we survive those in a way that our, our faith can stay strong and we can leave a legacy for our children and for those who follow us? We're going to look at that today. So Joshua 14, chapter 14, beginning in verse 6. Real quick background, uh, last week I think Pastor Dean ended in chapter 10, this week we're picking up in chapter 14, it's not because there's something really hard in between that I don't want to preach on, it's because there's just a whole bunch of battles in between, I don't really feel like talking through all the battles, but I can give you the gist of it, basically from the point where, where Dean left off last week, it's about seven years of fighting, the Israelites fight battles over about a period of about seven years. And basically, in that time, they take all the strategic cities, all the major cities of Palestine are conquered, all the major armies that were capable of launching an offensive against the Israelites are defeated, the Israelites wipe them all out, but there are still pockets of resistance, there are still enemies that, that are entrenched in different parts of Palestine, and these enemies are not powerful enough to launch an offensive against the Israelite army as a whole, but they're still entrenched. They're, they're sticking around. They're not leaving. And so now the Israelites are just getting ready to divide the land, and each individual tribe is going to have to go out and root out the enemies who are still in its territory. You're going to have to push them out. And so that's why, as you're reading Joshua, sometimes it'll say, hey, the land's been conquered. We've done it. And other times it'll say, hey, there's still more land to take. Because in one sense, the, the overall, the war is over. Israelites have won. They've defeated all the major players in Palestine. But on the other hand, there's still more fighting to happen. It's in some ways, I think it's analogous to uh, to the United States in the 1870s. I think in the 1870s, by that point, uh, and I'm sorry if this is not PC. It's just it's just history. At that point, the United States Army had supremacy. There's no question that the United States Army ultimately was was in control and was going to defeat the Native Americans. It was, it was not a question of if, it was just a matter of when. They had, they had all the strategic centers, they had all the major points, they had forts all over the place, they had powerful armies. Uh, there, was no, there was no Native American army that was capable of launching an offensive against the United States. 
But there were still major, large chunks of land in the western United States that were occupied by Native Americans. And they had not been fully brought under the control of the United States Army. And so if you were a settler, if you wanted to go settle those areas, you had to be ready to deal with Native, Native American populations that might not want you there. And so that's roughly analogous to what these Israelite tribes are now facing as they go to take their land, their territory. So, 14, verse 6. Now the men of Judah approached Joshua at Gilgal. And Caleb, son of Jephna, the Kezanite, said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God at Kadesh Barnea, about you and me. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to explore the land. And I brought him back a report according to my convictions. But my brothers who went up with me made the hearts of the people melt with fear. I, however, followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. So on that day, Moses swore to me, the land on which your feet have walked will be your inheritance, and that of your children forever, because you have followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. Now then, just as the Lord promised, he has kept me alive these 45 years since the time he said this to Moses, while Israel moved about in the desert. So here I am today, 85 years old, and I'm still as strong today as the day Moses sent me out. I'm just as vigorous throughout the battle now as I was then. Now give me this hill country that the Lord promised me that day. You yourselves heard that the Anakites were there, and their cities were large and fortified, but the Lord helping me, I will drive them out just as he said. Then Joshua blessed Caleb, son of Jephna, and gave him Hebron as his inheritance. So can everybody hear me? You know, John Sound? My voice loud enough? Leaky, can you hear me back there? All right, Leaky, can you hear me? I think I'm doing okay. I'm getting some thumbs up back there. Good. So verse 6, they, all the Israelite tribes meet at Gilgal. Gilgal is roughly in the middle of Palestine near Jericho. And so all the tribes meet right in the middle of the country. And Joshua is getting ready to divide the land. He said, okay, Judah, you go over here. And Ephraim, you go over here and divide the land between the tribes. But before he can do that, Caleb goes up to him and reminds him very boldly of the promise that God made to him. He says, hey, Joshua, before you do anything, make sure that you give me my land. The land that God promised me I want it. It's mine. And we may look at that and say, man, that's kind of selfish, right? That's kind of, man, he's, you know, he's kind of putting himself out there. But I think there's a good principle here that Caleb knows that God will keep his promise but he's active in seeking after it. He's active in pursuing it. And we can know that God will keep his promises to us, but we don't have to be passive. We don't have to sit back and say, well, if God wants to do that for me, he will. We can pursue God. We can seek God. We can, we can boldly pray. Jesus says, knock, and the door will be open. Right? Seek, and you will find. So Caleb is bold. He goes up to him, and he says, Joshua, remember, 45 years ago, Moses sent me to explore the land. He sent us to explore the land, to spy it out. And Caleb says, I brought back a report according to my convictions. Literally, an honest report. So he spies out the land, he brings back an honest report. And I think by that term, honest report, I think he means two things. One, he's saying, I, I was honest about the conditions there. I was honest about the problems. I, I said, yeah, the land is good, but there's some, there's some big armies. There's huge walled cities. There's powerful Powerful warriors, big guys, right? They're eating well, they're eating a lot of meat. And they're, they're buff, and they have big armor. 
And he said, I was honest about that, but I was also honest when I said that I believed that God would help us to win. I truly believed, I truly, I truly was convinced that God would help us to take that land. And I think there's a principle here for us in this. And that principle is that faith is honest. Faith is honest. Having faith does not mean that you have to pretend that there are no problems in your life. Or no obstacles that you're facing. It doesn't mean that you pretend to be super spiritual. And you quote these Christ, silly Christian cliches like, I don't, I don't walk through problems, I soar over them on the wings of an eagle. Like, you don't understand that kind of stuff. It's ridiculous. We all walk through problems. We all face obstacles in our life. Faith, faith is honest about that. And faith is also honest, and it, it doesn't pretend that, that you never feel any fear. Or that you never have any troubling emotions. Jesus felt troubling emotions. As he gets closer to the cross, as you read the Gospels, as he gets closer to the cross, he says, my heart is troubled. He says it a number of times. Man, my heart is troubled. I don't think Jesus was worried. I don't think he was anxious. But when he thought about being tortured over a period of about 24 hours and dying an excruciating death, uh, that troubled him. As it would trouble probably most of us. He was troubled by that. That concerned him. And so faith says, yes, these problems... And these obstacles in my life are real. And I'm concerned about them. But I will not give up in the face of these obstacles. I will not give in to these troubling emotions. Because I know that God will help me through this. And ultimately he will work things out for my good. I don't know how and I don't even know when maybe. But I know that he will and I'm going to trust him. And that's why faith is often equated in scripture with hope. And with perseverance, it's not, it's not this magical feeling of confidence that never gets discouraged. It's a choice to persevere and to keep trusting in God no matter what the circumstances are. Because of God's promises and how He's carried you and cared for you in the past. And that's what Caleb is saying here. He's not denying the obstacles. And he's not saying that he's unconcerned about the obstacles. He's saying that he trusted God to keep His promise. To give them the land. To give them victory. However, verse 8, not everybody felt that way. Caleb says, my brothers, the other spies who went up with me made the hearts of the people melt with fear. Melt with fear there. And the Hebrew, it goes, that phrase, it goes beyond just being afraid. It goes beyond just having a feeling of fear. It means to, to despair, to, to, to just Give into this feeling of hopelessness, to, to have no faith at all. It's essentially making a decision to trust your fears instead of trusting God. It's saying, My feeling of fear is a more reliable source of truth than God's word. So I'm going to trust my feeling of fear. That's why God was so angry at them. Sometimes I think when you look at this, you're like, Hey, God's pretty tough on these guys. When the reality is, God is patient. He is kind. If you have weak faith, if you're struggling in your faith, God is patient with you. He's kind to you. He will increase your faith if you ask Him. He will help you. But man, God hates unbelief. Because unbelief is not just fear. It's not just weak faith. It is a refusal to trust God. It's a refusal to trust Him. It's saying, God, my feelings are more valid than your promises. You know, we can't always control our emotions, but we can choose whether to trust and follow them. The Israelites choose to follow their fear, and because of that, God says, fine. You guys are going to wander in the wilderness for, for, until your whole generation is dead. 
until that whole generation that refused to trust me until they died. And that brings us back to Caleb. Caleb trusted God. And because of that, God promised him that he would inherit the land, that he would not die off like the rest of those guys. That he would go into the land and he would inherit it. But Caleb still had to suffer a major setback in his life because of the bad choices of other people. He had to suffer for them because of their sins. I mean, think about this. It says he's 40 years old when he goes to spy out the land. 40 years old. Man, you are in the prime of your life. Some of you 40-year-olds can say, I'm not in the prime physically. Well, I think overall, 40 years old is a good year. You have, you have a lot of life experience. You're still pretty healthy. That's a good time in life. A lot of people say 40s are your, your highest income earning years, right? I mean, this is that's the time when you start thinking for long term. You're thinking of a financial legacy for your family. And I think that when Caleb went into the land, and I think the fact that Scripture supports this, when he went into the land, he was thinking, this is where I'm going to live. He's walking around that Hebron area. He's like, this is where I'm going to live, right there on that mountain. See that, that, that house? It's, it's, you know, it's beautiful. It's shaded. It's defensible. There's, there's a field over there. I can, I can have my crops. There's some land for my, for my cattle. I have a big old ranch. And I'm going to pass this on to my kids. This is awesome. I think that's what Caleb was thinking when he was in the land. He's like, man, this is right in my fingertips. I'm just going to go back. I'm going to tell everybody, hey, let's, let's get our army. Let's go and take this. He's all ready. But then he has to wander in the wilderness for 40 years before he can have that for something he didn't do. And you can say, well, Joshua suffered the same. But I know that. But Joshua is second in command. He's interning under Moses, right? He has a very public ministry. I don't think it hurt Joshua as much. But Caleb, he fades into obscurity for four decades. Four decades. We don't, we don't know what's going on with him. Probably nothing special. Just leaving his flocks around the desert in circles day after day after day. Not taking land. Not building a home or a career. Not advancing the kingdom of God. No great accomplishments for 40 years. Just imagine him out in the hot sun. He's leaving his sheep around. His kids are complaining because all they ever eat is manna. They're so tired of manna. And they got cactus thorns in their sandals. And the wife is complaining about living in a tent. And, and he's thinking, man, I just remember that, that beautiful house I saw. I just remember that land. It could have been mine. 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Instead, I've been in the desert the whole time. I mean, imagine. How would you feel? Imagine. Kind of a, uh, an analogy for us. Let's say that you... Let's say that you're living in a tiny little shack up in the high desert somewhere. I mean, out in the high desert, I don't know if you've ever drifted, probably everybody here, you've driven out there, you're in the high desert, and you see some little shack out in the middle of nowhere, and you're like, man, there's people living here. It's hot, and there's nothing to do, and it's just rocks and scorpions. And, and I mean, so imagine that, you live in this little shack, and all of a sudden some great aunt dies that you really didn't know, and she, lives, she leaves you this huge inheritance and a big old house here in the South Bay. And you're like, all right, I would move to Beverly Hillbillies. Let's go, guys. We're back up with, back up with 20 kids. We're, we're heading to South Bay. Big old house, big inheritance. But of course, other people in the family are ticked off by that. And so they fight it legally. And so you have to wait. That, that inheritance gets delayed for 45 years. 45 more years you're living in the high desert in the shack. How are you, you going to be feeling about that? <laughs> I think, I think Caleb could have very easily given in to one of two responses. One, he could have just become bitter. Right? I think a lot of us would have been bitter. I think he could have gotten really disillusioned 
really angry over the unfairness of it. He could have been angry at people. But I think he could have been really angry at God. He said, God, is this how you treat people who trust in you? I trusted in you, God. This is how you're going to treat me? Fine, forget you, God. Forget you. Just, I'm just going to check out. And I think he could have still gone through the motions, all the religious motions, but I think in his heart he could have just checked out. He said, forget you, God. I don't trust you anymore. Or the other response, I think, is that he could have just resigned himself to it. He could have just been complacent. He could have just said, oh, fine, whatever. Right? He may have had faith at first and said, okay, God, when are these people going to die off? Right? I'm just waiting five years, you know. But ten years go by, twenty years go by, thirty years go by, these people are still alive. He's like, man, when are you people going to die? He's like, I take my inheritance. And I think it would have been easy for him just to resign himself to it and say, well, fine, whatever. I don't really care about the promised land. I don't really need the promised land. I'm, I'm cool living here in the desert. This is fine, whatever. I'm okay with it. Maybe someday they'll drag my my you know my barely living body into the promised land. I'll see it right before I die. But I'm I'm fine living here. But Caleb doesn't do that. He trusts God's providence. He believes that his destiny is determined by God, not people. Ultimately, and he trusts God's promise. He holds on to his hope. He trusts God that God will keep His word. And this is crucial. He stays ready for his opportunity. He stays ready. After 45 years, he is ready for his opportunity. When it comes, he's ready. And he goes for it. I think many of you could probably identify with Caleb sometimes. You have faced major setbacks in your life because of the bad choices of other people. And we don't want to develop a victim mentality because I think much of our pro- many of our problems come from our own sin and our own bad choices. But to, if we're going to be honest, the reality is we also suffer from the bad choices and the actions of other people. That's just the reality. Many of you, some of you, had parents who did not parent you well. And you're still having to overcome obstacles because of that. Some of you... You had a spouse who did not treat you well. And that spouse has left you, either left you physically or they're still in a relationship, but emotionally they're checked out. And you know that, that you did things to cause that, to cause that separation. It wasn't just them, it was also on you. But now you want to reconcile. You want to make things right. You want to get counseling. You want to do everything you can to repair the relationship. And they don't want to. And they're checked out and you can't control their choices. And so you and maybe your kids are suffering Maybe you have an employer, or you had an employer, who made some really unfair choices in how they treated you. And you're, you're either suffering there at that job, or you're unemployed because of that. And many of you could point to the recession and say, that was you know, partly at least because of corporate greed, and I've suffered. And I think the temptation, when we face these setbacks from, from the choices of others, is the same as Caleb. We can either feel bitter and disillusioned and angry at God, or we can just resign ourselves to it and become complacent and say, well, you know what, this is my life, so be it. Nothing's ever going to change. I just have to I just have to accept it. And fathers, I think there are a lot of, it's Father's Day, so I'll say this, I think there are a lot of men like this. I've known a lot of men who had very high ideals when they were young. They, 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 they loved Jesus and they were excited about expanding the kingdom of God and they had these high ideals. And then they face disappointments and failures and setbacks, and now they're just trying to get by. They're just, they're just trying to get by. They're trying to get through life. 
There's no hunger to seek God and serve God. There's not really much confidence in God at all. They're just trying to make it to retirement. They're just trying to escape life. And the legacy that they will leave for their kids is that when you live that way, your legacy is that my belief in God had no practical effect on my life beyond going to church. No practical effect. So many kids who are raised in these kinds of homes, these kinds of Christian homes, end up leaving the church because they say, man, my parents' faith had no practical effect on their life. None. So why should, why should I think that it's real? So I think God, God does not want us to live like that. God is calling us to be like Caleb, to trust his providence for the future, to trust his providence in our circumstances, to be faithful, to seek and serve God in our circumstances, but also to trust his promises for the future, to have hope, to wait patiently, trusting that God will redeem your circumstances and to be ready to step out in faith when God brings new opportunities. You may feel hopelessly trapped in hard circumstances beyond your control, but trust God's promise that the Lord is good to those who wait for Him, and in all things God works for the good of those who love Him. You may feel overwhelmed by human adversaries who seem to control your destiny, but trust God and say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? God is in control of my life. You may feel far from God and feel too sinful to change. Trust that God laid your sins on Jesus at the cross. And therefore, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. He can set you free from the power of sin and give you the power to live for God. You may feel too weak to serve God, but trust that the eyes of the Lord range throughout the whole earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully devoted to Him. You may feel that you don't know God's direction for your life, but if you trust in the Lord with all your heart, He will make your path straight. And if you delight yourself in the Lord, He will give you the desires of your hearts. You may fear that as you grow older, your body and your spirit will become too feeble in faith to trust God like Caleb did. But trust God when he says that even to your old age and gray hairs, I am he. I am he who will sustain you. I have made you and I will carry you. For he who began a good work in you will complete it. God's promises are sufficient to give you hope in every circumstance. So let's see how this ends for Caleb. Turn with me chapter 15, beginning of 13. In accordance with the Lord's command to him, Joshua gave Caleb, son of Jephna, a portion of Judah, Kirith Arba, that is Hebron. Arba was the forefather of Anak. From Hebron, Caleb drove out the three Anakites, Sheshai, Aimon, and Talmai, descendants of Anak. From there, he marched against the people living in Debir, formerly called Kirishabir. And Caleb said, I will give my daughter Aksha in marriage to the man who attacks and captures Kir Shafir. Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's brother, took it. So Caleb gave his daughter Aksha to him in marriage. So first, let's attack the, the weird white elephant here. Yes, Caleb's daughter marries her cousin. I get that. Hey, I noticed that. You're like, oh, it's gross. 
was a different era. I'm sorry. People did that back then. It was okay. What I want you to see, God keeps his promise to Caleb. God, Caleb goes up boldly. God strengthens him. God enables him to get the victory. But then what's really key here, what I love, in verse 16, Caleb gets the victory. And he could have just gone on and attacked another, this other city on his own. But instead, Caleb says, you know what? I want to give an opportunity from some, for someone from the next generation to step up and to step out of faith and to trust God. He says, I'm going to give someone else a chance now. And so he says, if somebody does this, here's motivation, you can marry my daughter. And Hoffman was like, yeah, my cousin's hot, I want to marry her. So, <laughs> sorry, guys, sorry. I was going to report West Virginia, but I'm not, not going to do that. <laughs> so, what happens? Othniel steps up to the challenge. He says, I, I think what he says is, you know what? God has been faithful to my uncle Caleb. God has, my uncle Caleb has trusted God these 45 years. God has been faithful to him. God has enabled him to, God has kept his promise to him. And so if that's the kind of God that my uncle serves, I'm going to serve that God. I'm going to have that same kind of faith. And he says, okay, I'm up for the challenge. I'll do it. He goes, he attacks, he conquers, he gets the girl happy ending. Oh, not quite. Because that's not the last we hear of Othniel. Fast forward about 40 years to, Joshua, to Judges chapter 3. Don't turn there, but Judges chapter 3. Caleb's dead. Joshua's dead. All the old dudes are dead. And Israel has again turned away from God. They, they have again started worshiping these idols. And so as a punishment, God sends this king, this foreign king who conquers them, who, who conquers much of Israel, all of Judah. And so the Israelites, they cry out and they say, God, we're sorry, please help us. And so God raises up to deliver, and the one, the one he raises up is a guy named Othniel. Othniel becomes the first deliverer of Israel, the first judge of Israel after Joshua. He steps up, he drives out that king, and he, he rules over Israel. And I think the reason he had the courage to step up and to be a deliverer for Israel is because gave, Caleb gave him that opportunity 34 years before. Caleb is the one who really mentored this guy to be the first one. Dads, fathers, leave a legacy for your children. Be a great example to them. Live by faith, even when you face the inevitable setbacks that will come from the bad choices of others. Live by faith. Trust God's word. But then also, as you live by faith, give opportunities for that next generation, for your children to step out in faith in God. When I, was, when I was 14 years old, I was not a, a very spiritual kid. I wasn't really following the Lord very faithfully. But I went to a, a youth conference, a camp, well, kind of like him, like And God got a hold of my life. He turned me around. And I came home and I said, Mom and Dad, I, I want to go on a mission trip for a month with this organization you never heard of called Team Maniacs. Most parents would be like, what, what are we talking about? No way. And my parents said, well, uh, we'll see. Which, again, most parents may know. But for my parents, it really matter. we'll see. And so that, that summer, I worked all summer on a farm, getting up at like 4.30 in the morning uh, to, to get sweet corn so I could raise money to go. And then the rest of the year, I'd make fundraise, and I asked people for money. And by the next summer, I had the money, and my parents said, okay, you can go. You can go. And so I went to Ecuador for, for a month with this team. And my parents had checked out the organization. They knew it was reputable, but they didn't know anybody on my team. They didn't know any of the leaders personally. But they said, you can go. It's a 15-year-old. And I asked them later, guys, that was pretty risky. Why did you do that? 
And he said, yeah, it was. It was hard for us to let you go. We were afraid for your physical safety. But we were even more concerned for your spiritual safety, for your spiritual health. And we thought if we held you back, that that could just, that could just stop your spiritual growth. It could lead you into a lot of the stuff a lot of the other kids were doing your age, getting into to drugs and drinking and different stuff like that. We said, we wanted you to live by faith. We wanted you to take a step of faith. And so I went on that mission trip, and that changed my life. It was from there that I really got set on a path to vocational ministry. Because my parents took that risk. So parents, take a risk. It's hard, but take, give your kids opportunities to step out in faith so that they can become people, men and women of faith. Let's leave a legacy like Caleb did. Please pray with me.